0: In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2.
1: Well, we're continuing our review of the pastoral epistles, starting with 1 Timothy, and tonight we'll explore 1 Timothy, chapter 2. And let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. What a precious gift it is. We do pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and lives to your word that we might learn from what you have here for us, that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, in whose name we commit this evening and ourselves. Amen. First Timothy. Now, as you know, the New Testament has a group of uh, epistles, 21 of them, if you don't count the seven the Lord penned in book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The major doctrinal ones are generally highlighted as Romans and Hebrews, but they all are very rich and, and uh, instructive. Seven of Paul's addressees are churches, seven churches. He wrote seven churches, just as Jesus wrote seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And three of those seven are called prison epistles because they were penned while he was in prison in Rome. But there are 3 of them, Timothy, Titus and Philemon that are to pastors. And we're going to explore first and second Timothy and Titus in this group grouping, the so-called pastoral epistles. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, all scripture and that includes Paul's letters by inspiration of God. We need to keep this in mind. Yes, it's Paul's personal notes and remarks at the same time we hold for a lot of reasons that all scriptures given by inspiration of God and the word uh, there is God breathed in the Greek. And so, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. As we memorize that per- uh, passage as many of us have, we may wonder what is the doctrine? What is reproof, correction, and instruction? Well, doctrine is, tells us what's right reproof tells us what's not right, correction is how to get it right, and instruction is how to stay right. So that may help you put practical implications to those four um, appellations there. Paul's background, he was arrested in Jerusalem about the year 57, was imprisoned in Caesarea for a couple of years, he had a voyage to Rome to be tried before Caesar, that started about 59 A.D., And after a shipwreck and a three-month wait on Malta, he arrived in Rome about February of 60 A.D. He lived in his own rented house and had liberty to minister. And during that time, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were written. During this first Roman captivity, he'll be released, be imprisoned again on another occasion. he, He was acquitted of the charges against him and released During the two years that followed, he ministered in various places and wrote 1 Timothy and Titus, the other epistles of this series. About 65 AD, he was arrested again and this time put into a dungeon. It was then that he wrote 2 Timothy, probably his final letter. And we picked it up last time after we did a quick summary of his first and second journeys, his third missionary journey. After spending some time at the capital of the operations in those days, in Antioch of Syria, he revisited the churches in Galatia and Phrygia in the order that we looked at earlier. And he makes Ephesus his base for the next three years. And uh, disciples of Apollos received the Holy Spirit. A church is founded there. Then we get into the Corinthian problems. He plans to go to Macedonia. He sends Timothy and Erastus instead. They visit Corinth. And Paul is worried about the immorality in the church there. I sometimes call 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians 1 Californians and Second Californians, okay? The word Corinthian was synonymous in their language for a fornicator. It was so characteristic of the lifestyle there. Three members of the Corinthian church bring a letter to Paul, and it's full of questions. The problems are greater than Paul had thought. It's even worse than he thought it was. So he writes and sends a letter called 1 Corinthians, tackling those problems, okay? He then hurries to Corinth. The visit is extremely painful for everyone, and Paul has to be very severe. He then returns to Ephesus and writes what's called the severe letter to them. It's alluded to. We don't have a copy of it, but there's another letter that would... There's really four letters to Corinth, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, but two of them are missing is the point, so... The severe letter, then he, ret- he returns to Ephesus and, re- and writes the severe letter. Titus takes the letter to Corinth. Paul arranges to meet Titus again at Troas urgently to get news of the situation. He's very worried that they may have reacted badly to that. And uh, so Paul's at the center of a riot in Ephesus. His message threatened the sale of silver statues of the, uh, of the goddess Diana. So he gets some big commercial trouble there. So he then goes to Troas. He's worried about his painful letter. Was it too harsh? Titus does not appear as arranged. So he goes to Macedonia in search of Titus. Can you imagine in that culture trying to find somebody? You're trying to you know, how do you connect with them? There's no cell phones. You know, there's no directories. But he goes to Macedonia in search in, in search of Titus. He encourages the churches and collects money for the church in Jerusalem. They finally, he and Titus finally meet. And the good news is the severe letter has been taken as Paul had intended. It didn't, they didn't reverse, react badly. It went well. So that's when he writes 2 Corinthians full of joy. He's joy that he's gotten this good report from Titus. And Titus takes that letter to prepare the church for Paul's third visit to Corinth. And so that's that. He stays in Acacia three months probably in Corinth, he writes the letter to Romans while in Corinth, his definitive statement in a sense, and, uh, but a plot by his enemies forces him to return back through Macedonia, and he gets back to Jerusalem, arriving from Philippi, he, uh, that's when he preaches till midnight, and uh, falls out of, a, you know, Nebelitis, he bids farewell to the Ephesian elders, a very famous passage in Acts 20, and then he finally heads back home. And in Jerusalem, of course, he lands a Tyre, spends a day at Ptolemaeus. At Caesarea, they stay at Philip's house. The prophet tells Paul he will be bound by the Jews in Jerusalem and handed over to the Gentiles. He goes anyway, despite those warnings. And at, at, in at Jerusalem, he's welcomed by the church, but he's recognized by the Jews from Asia, and a mob tries to kill him. The Roman troops troops arrest him to save his life, in effect. And his speech incites more violence, and he... he he announces his citizenship, which is a defense against the Jewish council. Because he's, citi- he's a Roman citizen. That shakes everybody up. They don't expect that. And uh, finally, uh, learning of a plot on his life, he's sent under armed guard to Governor Felix at Caesarea. So he has, before the Sanhedrin, arguments turn to violence. Before Felix, again, Festus replaced Felix after two years. So he- these hearings tie him up for years, you see. But finally, under Festus, he says, I appeal to Caesar. And... Um, the professor says, if he hadn't done that, I could have freed him. But no, Paul, he, he, he's destined to go to Rome, but this way it's under government expense. <laughs> okay? So before Agrippa, he, while awaiting his appeal and so forth. So, as you know, he has this big storm and shipwreck, and uh, he ends up on Malta. There's a whole story about Acts 27, is itself a fabulous chapter, has enough seamanship detail by which we found the. I shouldn't say we, but the, 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 the anchors have been found uh, that he cut loose during that, that storm. But anyway, he ends up, after surviving uh, the, some adventures there, he finally ends up going to Italy. And after local, he finally, after a couple of years, he's back in house arrest awaiting his trial. For two years, he has a lot of freedom to preach there and so forth. So his final footprints, of course, are Timothy. Um, he's out of prison, released from his house arrest at the end of Acts. Uh, Titus is uh, also Timothy. These are the last three letters uh, that we have from Paul. So, okay, last time we were in chapter 1, talking a little bit about doctrine. In this chapter, we're going to get a few glimpses as, as to order in the church. And uh, it's going to, there are many people today that tend to regard Paul's perspectives as outdated. And while I respect people's... Uh, ability to take those views, I can tell you candidly, we take the view that it's God-breathed. And so some of the things that he may say may be uncomfortable, but we need to prayerfully take that under consideration because it, we believe it is God's Word. So let's jump in to this, and I talked just a little by way of review. How many of you are in full-time ministry? All of you, exactly. So we're, we have diversity of gifts. All of us have to concern ourselves with the depth of our commitment to Christ, We know that the challenges we're going to face are predictable and substantial, and that these letters anticipate the challenges you and I are going to face today. Let's recognize that right up front. Something else to be aware of, it was fashionable in those days to have professional secretaries. They didn't have printers, carbon paper, copiers, that sort of thing. Everything had to be handwritten, so there was a profession of people that were skilled at doing that. Highly qualified assistants, more than just shorthand writers, they were that, but also editors, very skilled. And we find them all through these letters. Paul and Sosthenes, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Timothy. That's in 1 and Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians. And in 2 Thessalonians, Paul, Sylvanus and Timothy. Paul and Timothy, Sylvanus. Silvanus is the same as Silas, by the way, it's a Greek equivalent. I'm not suggesting that Timothy necessarily was a professional secretary, but he obviously served Paul well in many ways. Now, did he have shorthand skills? I don't know. These others did, apparently. And that's a whole study in its own right. Let's just jump in. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks. Those are four different kinds of prayers, aren't they? Be made for all men. First of all. That's the priority statement. First of all. Before everything else, pray. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks, those are all prayers. Seven different Greek nouns are for prayer. Four of them show up right here. Supplications. Desis. What does that mean? A need. Uh, indigence, want, privation, penury. That's a need. Supplications. What do you need? A seeking, asking, entreating, entreating to God or to man. Supplications. I think we understand what supplications are. Offering a request for a felt need. Tragically, most of our prayers are just those. They should be the last. They should be the last. And uh, some people use the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, right? And um, what's T? I've forgotten. (laughs) Thanksgiving, thank you. Thanksgiving and then supplication. But supplication is last is the point adoration, confession thanksgiving, and then supplications makes sense another word here is uh, prosuki, which is uh, emphasizes the sacredness of prayer I suspect that would be in the adoration or praise category then there's intercessions these are petitions for, on the behalf of somebody else right? to a person and converse confidently with him emphasizes fellowship and this is sort of the same thing we do in blessing the food that we eat. And then Thanksgiving itself, Eucharistia. Sometimes we need to imitate David and present to God only Thanksgiving with uh, no petitions at all. Many of the, uh, David's Psalms are engaging because they just praise God. They're just overwhelmed by who God is. All men, no person, on the earth is outside the influence of believing prayer. Believing prayer. Saved and unsaved. You'll find examples all through the Old Testament. Stephen. Near us or far away, enemies or friends. All can be the subject of prayer. And should be. Continuing. For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Honoring authority. Well, only if we agree with it, right? Not quite. That's not the deal. It says, pray especially for those authority, for among other things, that the word of God might continue to go out to the lost. That should be our concern. What facilitates or what impedes? The word of God. That's what it's all about. But this whole area of submission to governing authorities is a touchy area. Remember, Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. You know, it's interesting. He's, when He asked for the coin. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's. Well, then render to Caesar. It, most people miss the point. It's the other issue that's in. Who are you the image in? Who's, who, whose image are you in? God's. So render under Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God's the things that are God's. Let the money be his. You should be God's. It's a double-sided thing. Many people only see half the story there. Be absolutely submissive to God, and you will discern from God's ways how to be secondarily submissive to human institution authorities. Your first obligation is to be submissive to God, and from that will derive your posture to human authority. Let's talk, we'll go to, you know, we, at Romans 13, we usually engage this. Let's talk about 1 Peter 2. Let's just re- take a couple of verses from Peter. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king or as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's why you get law-abiding, is to silence the critics. The word damnation, by the way, uh, is a uh, judgment or condemnation judgment not damnation in the in the theological sense the bible does not speak in a vocabulary of a representative democracy that's part of our dilemma here that's where officials are elected and laws are drafted by elected officials have authority over officials so our allegiance is not to a person but to a rule of law is the concept so we make applications to our democratic context carefully Submission in our republic is primarily to laws and constitutional processes and not to persons. Your allegiance is to the office of president, not the person of the president. There's a big difference. Our officials are actually our employees. You need to recognize that. Biblical submission is a readiness to obey law and uphold legal order, not an approval or an endorsement of all lawmakers or even all the laws, absolutely christ's absolute supremacy over our lives qualifies the absoluteness of human law. The Christian apologi- uh, recognizes Christ and his law as the final authority that makes sense right? Romans thirteen deals with this too. Let every soul be subject unto higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that are that that be are ordained of God. whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive the to themselves damnation. That's where the word damnation, it, there it means judgment or condemnation, not, not damnation in the theological sense. There's, there's exceptions to these in Acts 4, and we need to know the law in Acts 23 as examples to that. Let's take a look at Acts 4. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside out of the council, they conferred conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in his name. That's pretty stupid, but that's what they And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to speak. Each in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John says, Okay, that's what we'll do, right? No, that's not what they said. But Peter and John answered and said unto him, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing on how they might punish them, because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. The point really being is they their point is they obey God first, man second. That was their point. There, that was the case. They chose to ignore this edict from their governing council. And again, you and I have a different situation because it's not anticipated in the express terms of the Scripture. Our officials are actually our employees. The Bible does not seem to deal directly with the responsibilities of a democracy in which officials are elected and laws are drafted by elected officials in authority over the officials. You and I are committed to a rule of law, not a specific Ruler. And submission to our republic is primarily to laws and constitutional process, not to persons. And one of the problems we have is the Constitution is shredded and being discarded by our present culture and our present administration, which creates an ambiguity that plunges us into lawlessness. Are we surprised? That's exactly what the Scripture predicted. Biblical submission is a readiness to obey law and uphold legal order not an approval or an endorsement of all lawmakers or even the laws absolutely. Christ's absolute supremacy over our lives qualifies the absoluteness of human law. John the Baptist's preaching is an example of a proper indictment of present government authority. Let's take a look at it. Matthew 11. Verily I say unto you among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Wow, that's quite a statement by Jesus Christ. Among them that are born of women, There hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Pause. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Wow. Boy, there's a study that can come out of that distinction. But that's what Jesus said about John the Baptist. Where was John when Jesus is saying that of John the Baptist? He's in the can. He's in prison. Why? for publicly indicting the ruling king. Wow. Think about that. Gutsy guy. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother, Philip. What John is saying unto him is not lawful for you to have her. Wow. Opposition to a leader's behavior and public criticism of it and declaration of moral unfitness for office is not necessarily inconsistent with a submissive spirit to the governing authorities. It cost John his head. He's beheaded. So he paid the price. Romans 13 continues, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Will thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. It's presuming that... The rulers are a terror to evil works. What ha- I mean, to good works. What happens if they are a terror to uh, good works and, uh, rather than evil? Now, well, that's what leads to things like the American Revolution, what have you. Comes at a price. You can contrast this with rebellious Jews against the, Romans, the Roman law. Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. What is to be done when the rulers are evil and the terror to good works? That's, that's the dilemma we're facing. We have a unique mandate. I believe you and I are going to be accountable for this. A government of the people, by the people, and for the people. That's what we've been given. Well, with that comes an accountability, and we've blown it. The illiteracy of our electorate is the biggest problem in America ignorance or apathy? The average person will say, I don't know, and I don't care. (laughs) Our first priority is knowing the truth about our leadership. Joseph Farah, the founder of World at Daily, has dedicated his life to the idea that the primary mission of a newspaper is to be a watchdog on the government. And that's being challenged as we speak before the Supreme Court. If by some chance that should go against him, it will end free speech in America. If it doesn't go against them, we still have to be selective and recognize those few media that are being faithful to that charge, because the tragedy is big money owns most of the mainline media and they have an agenda of their own, and it's not truth. The crucial role of a free press, I encourage you if you get a chance to pick up a copy of Stop the Presses by Joseph Farah and you'll discover a chronicle of events that have occurred in recent years that I had no idea. Gives you a whole different perspective of the warfare that's being waged in our country. I personally believe that we are going to see more persecution of Christianity in this country in the future. And I'm not alone in this. J. Vernon McGee, some several decades ago, pointed out that this persecution will probably not include many church members. The liberal church is so compromised today that they will go along with whatever comes along. He even went so far as to suggest that the attack against the true believers going underground will come from the denominational churches. Interesting for a guy that's a pretty centerline kind of guy. Moving on to verse 3 and 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. That's God's objective. This is good. The Greek word therefore, good really means intrinsically good, not just in its effects. Fair and beautiful are almost synonyms of that word. The Pharisees prayed to be praised by men or other worshipers. Make sure that 's not you You'll be praying to God and what he 's all about. God so loved the world that he gave his only son john three sixteen we all know it of course god 's desire is that all men come to the knowledge of salvation through faith in christ let 's keep that let 's remember that let 's come to that in front of us that 's Strangely enough, a refutation of some Calvinistic ideas. His desire is that all men come. But there is an issue of personal will, volition here. But here's a key verse in 1 Timothy 2.5, one of those you may want to memorize. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Very fundamental All prayer is based on the work of Jesus Christ as Savior and Mediator. There is only one God, there is therefore a need for only one Mediator, Jesus Christ. No other person can qualify. No angels, not saints, not Mary. Let's understand that. Not very pleasant to some, but there it is in the Word of God. Well understood. One mediator. And, and interestingly enough, the trans, there's a no definite article before man in the Greek that suggests the translation, Christ Jesus himself man. Okay, there's no definite the, definite. the lack of definite articles even makes it more definite in a sense.
0: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Timothy. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, May God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.